Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today I've got Jessie Benson with me. Jessie is a woman who has fought long and hard what she really wants to become when she grows up. And I think she is still working on that. Um, and that's great because life is changing. Life has got challenges. And sometimes the paths that we initially choose to make us happy and fulfill us might turn out not to be the right thing for you when you look deep and really hard into your deeper inner yourself. So Chessie has changed her life dramatically and is coming to my show today to tell us her story so that we can learn from her. So Chessie, thank you very much for coming onto my show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you are a woman who helps other women find their brave and find their no. Now that intrigued me endlessly when you wrote that down for me, but I know exactly what you're talking about because I have been a people pleaser for a very, very, very long time. You want me to do that? Oh yes, it will be an honor. Yes, of course I will do that. And I shall do that too? Oh really? Oh yes, of course, of course. If I could do that too? Oh, well, of course, it will be an honor for me. To say the word no, is so hard for us, isn't it? It's crazy. It, tru it truly is because when we say no, we, we're afraid that we're sacrificing relationship, we're sacrificing approval, we're sacrificing our place in the tribe, in the community, in the family. And, and so we don't. So we say yes when we really have no interest in saying yes and we sacrifice ourselves. Hmm. And often to our own detriment, uh, often we stretch ourselves so thin that we end up with burnout and we end up in situations where we are feeling full of shame and guilt. Yet, this was actually a construct by our own mind, by our own willingness to be out there uh, to please absolutely everyone and his dog. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a tricky one. So, and we both have recognized that, and we both now live lives that include boundaries and that include limits that we have chosen to, to lay down on the ground and that most of the time we adhere to. But that was not always the time. <laughs> that was certainly not the time before my rehab when I was uh, when I was out there and identifying myself by the amount of work I can do. And look at me, here's another publication. And look at me, here is, you know, all that kind of rubbish. Oh, God, I'm, I'm just going to oh, do that. <laughs> so, so how was your former life? How, how, how did you start wanting to make others happy around you? It was very simple how I got to be where I was. I grew up in a home where I didn't get very much attention. Mm -hmm. And so where I got attention was in school. And so I learned very early, even kindergarten, when I, because I had a good memory, I was able to make good grades. And as soon as I made good grades, the teacher loved me. I became the teacher teacher's pet. And so I thought, this is wonderful. All I have to do is do well on this test. And then I get all this attention and I was hooked. I was addicted to achievement. I was straight A's. I thought a B was death because it meant not getting that approval. I, my <laughs> golly, I, I can remember one time I got a B in like third grade handwriting. And I seriously thought it was the end of the world. Um, because I just needed, I thought I needed that approval. So it led me through all those grades up through high school to university. I was first in my medical school. I went on to medical school because I wanted those A's to continue. I was first in my medical school class. I was first in my fellowship class when I trained to be an ICU doctor. I could not stop chasing the A until one day I did. Oh, you sound so like me. It was I was quite mediocre at uh, in the middle school, and then one day my father uh, tried to entice me with money, and he said, "Look, next time you are best of the class, I give you five dollars, and if you're second best, well, you get two dollars, and third, 
doesn't count. And I thought, oh, okay. And I figured out it's actually not too hard to be best at that, at the class. Suddenly I've got $5. Wow. And within a very short period of time, I had a tap built up where sort of, you know, heading hundred plus dollars. And my father said, well, actually, I, I don't really have the money to give you that money. We, I come from a blue collar background. But by that time, like you, I was hooked because not just did I become the teacher's pet, uh, and that's a shit word. Not, I did get the approval. Huh, how do you say that without being negative? Because in, it's how weird is that, that in our culture, we want to put a negative word on to something that is actually very positive, something very beautiful, that you achieve something in school, that you learn, that you, that you grow, that you blossom. Yet we put it down as teacher's pet. That's actually a bit nuts. So hmm, need to think about something else there. But I was there and not just with the teachers. Suddenly the cool kids at school came to me and not in a, in a kind of derogatory way, a, hey, you know, come on, give me your homework, but rather, wow, you did really well. And they meant it. They did. They said, wow, you did well there. And wow. And suddenly I was part of the cool group. And it was, how did that happen? So I know so much how you felt. It is intoxicating to, to get this, this approval by someone else, is it not? It really is. And mine became blanket. I wanted the grocery store clerk to, to approve of me. Like I could not handle the thought that someone didn't like me, that someone didn't think I was nice, that someone didn't think I was polite. It would chew at me if there was a misunderstanding in public and someone, you know, thought maybe I wasn't being polite. I know I really I am polite. It's like I had to prove to the whole world like me. I'm worth liking. And it was exhausting to say it was exhausting is such an understatement. It was being in a hamster wheel relentless, like an eternal job interview is how I've heard it described. And I absolutely agree. All of life was a job interview for me. I didn't realize it until you now spelt it out that I lived the same life. And it's quite actually disconcerting. Uh, but here I am. Uh, it only shows that each and every single interview I do, I learn so much. And this is no exception here, Jesse. Um, it's, of course, hard for us because that same wish to please suits you as a doctor exceptionally well because you go the extra mile. You go the extra mile to be meticulous, to be careful, to not make a mistake. And that is a very beautiful thing. So if someone is lying there uh, or if someone's relative is lying there in ICU, in the intensive care unit, if you guys don't know the abbreviation, in the intensive care unit, and that's where you go when you're really sick. Now, if then there is a doctor like Chessie or like me for that matter, we're really trying to be meticulous and we're trying to be as good as we can because we want to please everyone. Uh, beautiful. But then, of course, life is not really designed to be like that because there are people out there who are not necessarily so nice to you. There are people who write complaints. And sometimes they write complaints because they are, they have got personality disorders. They thrive on chaos and friction on things. Sometimes they are just assholes. Just sometimes there are, there are actually very legitimate reason that some negative outcome has occurred. And the patient wants to make sure that something like that never happens again. So it's not necessarily against the doctor, but it's against the system to say there's a system problem. Regardless what it is, a complaint. How did you perceive a complaint? What happened to you? Did you ever have a complaint against you? I thankfully never had any bad events. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get out of the operating room and the ICU because I felt like I was chasing it. Like one, I was trying to outrun it. One day there would be a bad outcome because it happens to everybody if they stay in medicine long enough. But yeah. thankfully never had a big um, event, but I, ha I have had patients before who I remember one time I was explaining in anesthesia, as you know, it's very, it can, dental damage can happen when the breathing tube is being put in. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling a family who had a, a teenage, um, 
teenager getting ready to have surgery, I did the conformed consent. It's possible to injure teeth. We do our best not to, but I need to tell you that can happen. Mm. And they wrote a complaint because they didn't want their child to hear, or is a teenager to hear or them to hear because they'd spent so much money on this child's teeth. They didn't want to know that was a possibility, but it is. And that's me giving informed consent uh. to, to not tell them that truth would have not been honest or, or been informed consent. And that bothered me because I thought, gosh, I'm sitting here trying to do my best, as you say, <laughs> trying to, to follow the standard of care, trying mm. to give my patients and their families mm. an honest uh, situation. And they didn't like it. And so I thought, what could I have done differently? And so it did. It bothered me because I was doing my best and it wasn't good enough. And I couldn't just let it go. You know, I I remember it today, obviously. And that's very interesting because I've, uh, I've got a very good friend who is very meticulous in his informed consent. So he's going the extra mile like you. And patients don't like it. They actually don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know the facts. They are, they want to be blissfully unaware. And then if something goes wrong, they can sue or they, well, we don't sue in New Zealand. We, we can write a complaint kind of a thing. So there is the, the not too many, there are some people who just simply do not wish to know the, the full truth. And that has, has, uh, Risen to some conflict uh, with some of his patients because they, he gave them a very good reason why anesthetic A would be better than anesthetic B, and he strongly advised anesthetic A. Uh, and then he was called a bully for trying to push them towards A anesthetic. And he's saying, "Well, I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to look at the patient as if you're my brother, and 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 that kind of thing. And it hurts." It just hurts when you when you try your best and then you feel it actually sometimes like a slap in the face. So certainly for me as a doctor, I felt I felt any any kind of questioning about my, my practice, anything like that. For a long time I felt like a personal insult. So I could not distinguish between between some very justified questioning of a system compared with a direct insult or, or, or attack on me. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, us empaths and us, us super sensitive people are unfortunately very, very vulnerable there. Mm-hmm. And I hear in between the lines, you were a bit like that. Absolutely. I was very sensitive to people's feelings, to how people felt I was taking care of them. And thankfully, because like you said, I was so meticulous across the board, people loved for me to take care of them. And nurses loved when I was taking care of their patients, but it could be one out of a thousand who wasn't perfectly happy and it would hang with me and it would, it would cloud out the 999 that were so incredibly happy. Absolutely. And that's, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Um, Wow. It's, it's amazing, though, when I look at your career, you could have chosen dermatology, you could have chosen eye surgery, uh, you could have chosen something where, where let's say dermatology, um, there are probably only a number of, of skin products you can use to, to get a thing better. And there's probably not much life and death in dermatology. So you could have chosen something far more relaxing but yet you went for intensive care where really the shit hits the fan. So what did attract you to that? Twofold. One, I originally picked anesthesiology. That's my foundation practice. And I chose that because I love variety. I love to be doing something different every day. And anesthesia is everything, every age, <laughs> gender, surgery. I had to know everything about everything, every medicine, every surgery, every disease. And I love that. But then I chose IC intensive care unit on top of that because anesthesia is take care of a patient, they go home or they leave the OR and there's not any continuity of care. There's not following the story. And so I chose ICU because I love to follow the story to see how they change day after day after day. Um, And also, this is another reason because where I trained in anesthesia 
the ICU doctors were considered the smartest doctors in the hospital. So I was like, well, I want to be that. If that's the smartest doctor in the hospital, of course, I want to go be the thing that's like the best. And so that uh, was another reason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I was expecting that answer. <laughs> so that was good on you. Good on you. So you did that. So here you were. So for those of you out there who are not so good in maths, so Jesse went to school for a quarter of a century to become the specialist that she is. So she spent quarter of a century, 25 years or thereabouts, uh, in university and postgraduate training and school, everything together to achieve something, to be someone. Wow. Now that takes balls or ovaries or backbone, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> you had it. <laughs> Probably all of them. <laughs> Hell. Um, and still you were not happy. How bizarre is that? Yes. Around, about 10 years ago, when I was well into my anesthesiology and ICU medicine practice, I realized that I, that I had this equation that we've been talking about where my worth was, was equa equated to my ability to achieve and get approval. That that was the equation. My value equals what other people think of me and how well I can do things. And about 10 years ago, I realized that actually isn't true. That I have innate value just because. Just like everything does. Just like everyone does. It gives me chills when I say it. And when I realized that, I realized that my entire life had been making decisions because of that equation. I would look at a situation. I would think, what's going to get me the most achievement and the most approval? And that's what I would do. I wouldn't care about, did I like it? Did I want it? Was it going to feel good? Was it going to be enjoyable? I didn't think about any of that. And so when that equation broke in my mind, that's when I started looking at, well, what do I really want? And that's when the whole world opened up to me. That's when I say I found my brave. And I started trying everything. I tried all sorts of musical instruments. I became a cellist. I became an artist. I, I did sprint like mini triathlons. Uh, it's just because I had, I had never wanted to try anything because I thought if I failed, that meant I was bad and no one would like me or want me. And so once I no longer thought my worth was dependent on my success, I could try and do and be anything in it. And it's been like that since, and it's an amazing life to live. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Ed, how often did you burn out in your previous life? I didn't really, I did get tired of the schedule because I didn't even really get tired of it until I had something else I wanted to do instead. Hmm. Once I became an artist, this is all when I was still practicing medicine. Once I became a musician, once I wanted to go and perform at concerts, once I wanted to make my art, once I wanted to go do a triathlon, then there was something I wanted other than achievement and approval. And that's when there started to be friction between me and medicine, because it's a very unpredictable life. There's staying up all night. There's weekends. There's holidays. The schedule was didn't allow for me to just plan things like I wanted to do. And so that's when I realized I need to have a different kind of life so I can do these things I love. And, and so I never got burned out. I just decided it was incompatible with the life I wanted to live. I don't think I was as good as you there. I certainly ended up uh, at times just because of the schedule, I guess. If you work 24 hours, if, well, if you work 16 hours straight, then if you, if, I, if you put someone into a driving simulator, then you're about as good as with three quarters of a bottle of wine. And if you work 24 hours straight, then you might as well get pissed because that's about the same performance that you do. Yet, certainly when I started training, we had weekends that we were on call. We had 24 hours on, 24 hours off. And when we were on, we were on. And it was amazing. I, I, that was sort of the, the last century, a few months ago. But then even in, in when I did some intensive care, I remember one, I think it was a night shift, and I came off 
And I watched Forrest Gump, the film. And within 15 minutes, I started crying. And I was crying throughout the whole freaking film because I was so emotionally challenged. I was so, so at my limits of having burned a candle on all ends because there I was trying to be a trainee, trying to be good, to prove myself, trying to be the best doctor I can be, trying to be the best, trying to please everyone. I made a point of trying to do a, a publication every six months. So when I came to a new place in my, as part of my anesthetic training, I chose some mentor and then I wrote a case report or I did a study or et cetera. So because it's publish or perish, it is that kind of establish yourself within the academic world. And that was part and parcel of me becoming a, success, a successful doctor. So it is all that that often people out there don't realize what doctors actually go through. And to a, to a degree that's self-inflicted and to a degree it's very much expected. Because the generation before us, these were the, the hardcore guys. These were the guys who would be expecting 96, 100-hour work weeks. And I mean 100 hours. And you're lucky if you get some food for that. Um, and that's what they left. And that's what they expected from their trainees. What do you mean you're coming to work at 7? Yes, officially you start at 8, but of course you want you to be here at 6.30. That was the, the attitude still. So it, don't don't get us wrong, guys. So if you are out there listening in, the life of a junior doctor certainly is brutal, absolutely brutal. It's getting a little bit better, but hell, the pressures on us doctors, they're huge. And some of these pressures are very much from our own tribe and from ourselves. So I think that is sometimes very, very important. So next time you are, uh, you are venting your frustration against the nursing staff or against the paramedic or against a doctor, I want you please to remember these words because we are bloody sensitive. Whilst we are there to help you, Every negative word you say hurts us so much more than you could possibly think because we give so much and we sacrifice so much. So this is a fact. And there is not a single doctor, there's not a single nurse I know who would not not very strongly in, in recognition of what I've just said. And here we are, let's talk about the facts. 95% of ED nurses have either been uh, physically uh, uh, assaulted or certainly screened, etc. within the last month in Australia. Australasia, shall I say. That was a study. So we treat those people who want to be nice to us, we treat like shit. So dear society, dear people out there, okay, time to hold the mirror in front of your face. But that's, we're going off on a tangent. It's just I'm very passionate about the well-being of doctors and nurses and paramedics and uh, ambulance, uh, uh, police, fire, all the emergency services out there because we're all the same. We're going, uh, we are the idiots who run towards the gunfire. We are the idiots who run towards, towards the, the crash because we want to help and to then be treated like shit hurts so bad but that was your life in the past and that was my life in the past because I made changes and I drew boundaries I draw boundaries now and I live by them tell us what was the point where your life actually changed where you said okay yes I've put this much this much energy into my life but actually enough is enough yes so when enough was enough was I discovered art in around 2011 and music around the same time. And I, in, in those couple years of really getting connected to my creative side, I started realizing that I could actually 
support myself doing things I love that I didn't have to be a doctor anymore. So first I had to even think it was a possibility and how it became a possibility was because I spent time around professional musicians and they were supporting themselves. And so I got to see examples of people doing something they love and, and being able to provide for themselves. So first I had to see it was even possible. Then I had to pay off my $250,000 medical school debt, US dollar medical school debt, which I'd been working on the whole time, but I still had a significant amount to go. So then the third part of it was, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, I could be an artist. I could be a musician. What else? And I read an article about being a life coach. And that's something that I realized by reading what they do, how they guide people, how they help them build their best life possible. That's what I was already doing informally for the people in my life, my family, my friends, people at the hospital. I would have conversations in the locker room and then women would come back a month later or six months later or a year later and say, that time you said that thing, it still it is still with me. And I did this with it. And I wanted to let you know how much that meant to me. And I thought, gosh, wow, this is really cool. And then I thought, I can do this for a living. I can help people be their best for a living and actually support myself. And so when all those things happened, when I realized it was possible to support myself doing something I love, when I paid off my debt, and when I found being a life coach, that's when I knew it was time to leave. And so in, in mid-14, I gave my six-month notice to the hospital. And a couple months before I did that, I sent the last check for my medical school debt. And so I was debt-free. And it was time to go. And so I enrolled in school, life coach school, and I started um, later on that year. And then I left medicine altogether. Christmas night of 14, I brought my cello and I played in the ICU. I played for the patients and the staff. <laughs> what a beautiful, well, it's not a swan song. What a beautiful closure of a chapter in your book. Excellent. So what, one interesting thing happened though, that I thought that was my last night as a doctor. I thought, this is it. Goodbye. I've, I've had a great career and I'm glad to move on. And then I had, I had signed up to go to, to India for a meditation trip, like right after I left medicine in early January. And I had to ground that plane to take care of a man who was having a uh, an emergency. I was sitting on the plane and I was relaxing. And then I heard overhead after I left medicine, is there a doctor on the plane? I thought, I said, universe, come on now. I'm not a doctor anymore. This, this does not count. And I, I looked at the guy beside me and I, I kind of tapped him. I said, yeah, I got to go. And I got up and the man was unconscious and and I had to help him and, and I had to, and he didn't get stable enough that I thought he could make it to India. And so I had to ground the plane in Germany. And so that was my last official act as a doctor was grounding a plane in Germany to let a man off who needed <laughs> emergent care. <laughs> go out with a bang, I say, here you go. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, how, how much is that? It's about a million dollars. I think last time I looked around about that time, that would be the cost of grounding a plane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, the whole rest of the plane ride all the way to India. People kept saying, you're such an angel. Thank you so much. And the staff, the flight attendants, they were so grateful because uh, they were glad that I stood up for that patient because they said other people haven't stood up and they've not said, no, this plane has to ground. And so it was important to even then honor that patient's boundaries and say, you have to let this man off this plane. He needs care. And so even then I had to be brave to do that. It takes a huge amount of, of bravery to do that. So, wow. Um, you obviously have got a very strong moral compass as far as your actions are concerned. Did you always have that compass? Was that always there? I definitely was. I definitely always wanted to do what was right. And I definitely always felt like I knew what was right. And I also cared so much about approval that I wouldn't be true to myself. I wouldn't hurt someone, but I wouldn't stand up for my truth. I would just go along mm. and pretend like I liked things. I, I just wouldn't say anything because I was so afraid to stand up and say, I don't really actually like this because I, I wanted liked. So yes, I always, but I didn't always use it. So yes, I had it, but I didn't use it. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. 
that's a lovely way. Because when it comes to addiction and when it comes to, to alcoholism, we would do everything and anything to hide. And there are uh, so many opportunities to not follow your moral compass. You know what is right. You know what you really should do. Um, but uh, as an alcoholic, part of the symptoms are denial is that you that you say, no, I'm fine. And that's 95% of people who are drinking dangerously. They say, no, I'm fine. That's absolutely okay. Look over there, Joe Blocks. Oh, he's drinking me. Ah, nah. Mm -hmm. And the old saying, you know, the definition of an alcoholic, someone who is drinking more than his doctor. And there is something actually to be said about that too. Anyhow, moral compass. So I... Let me let me rephrase that a bit. You invested so much, and the people around you invested so much. Your parents, for example, there was a great expectation by them to see their their daughter grow, blossom, and here's my daughter, the anesthesiologist. Ah, oh, that's they must have been proud ass. And then you said, "Mommy, daddy." <laughs> I will now stop my medical practice. Yeah. There, I was so grateful that there was no one in my life. I'm, I'm just very grateful this way. I'm so lucky that my family and my friends, they fully supported me. In fact, everybody, I, I was in that hospital for six months with, with so it's a large hospital, multi-hundred bed hospital. And not one person in six months said, why are you doing this? Like, this is a bad idea especially not the doctors. They would say, take me with you. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> I just, my family, they, they trust that I know what I'm doing and they trust that this is what people always say. Even today, when I do something, they say, if you're happy, I'm happy. And, and so I didn't have a backlash. Beautiful, beautiful, because that is so common what I hear for other people, other guests who have changed their lives. There were not always supportive voices around them. There was not always the, the support there because remember, you're an empath. You want to please. You want to, to be there for others. And then this little but of of growth is coming, trying to break through the through the eyes, through the, the the earth, and one footstep, one eye raised by your father or someone you like who asks you, "Are you sure?" That's enough to put so much doubt in yourself. And uh, God, I, I even now I feel the same thing. Immediately the voice comes up and says, "Ooh, ooh, see, you shouldn't do that." Mm, no, 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 no. But I think it's a good idea. No, 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 no. And here you are, you're extremely lucky. But what, what would you say to someone who wants to change their life and he knows or she knows that deep inside it's the right thing to do, but they are facing the criticism from a loved one, let's say from their parents. What would you say? I would say follow your heart. I, I am such an advocate of truly living who you are. And, and this is because I have not for so many years. I have so many years of inauthentic living. And now I have about a, a good five solid years, but definitely at least 10 where I was at least somewhat authentic, but definitely the past five to be really living who I am, what I love, with who I love, where I love. There is nothing like it. So I, I say start today. Like no matter what anybody says, please follow your heart because it is just one sweet, precious little life that we for sure get. And, and it is best when we live it true to ourselves. No, no comparison, no amount of approval is worth a, a, a ton of approval is not worth one ounce of living who you truly are. So true. And if you ask, I've asked previous guests at times, if you could go back in time and tell your younger self something, or what would be your last words on your deathbed, 
then one of the most impressive things for me was the statement, be bolder, go out there and live your life and don't wait, but start right now. Mm-hmm. And that is so true. I've, I've got freaking goosebumps. Um, just, just saying that <laughs> because it is such an important thing. I have, I had forgotten who I was. I worked, 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 worked. I was there for everyone else. And then I crashed and burned, came out of rehab, and I was an empty shell. I, there was, I didn't know who I was. There was nothing there. I could identify maybe with someone who was 21 and had then his dreams and visions and, and was doing circus arts and, and doing martial arts, etc. So I did things when I was younger. But when I actually look back, well, wow, that was two decades ago. What are you now? Empty. And that was actually scary. So I reinvented myself and I wouldn't have it any other way. This was the most beautiful thing I could have done for myself to create a new uh, version 2.0 that is independent of my profession as a doctor. I love my profession. I'm still an anesthetist. I love what I do, but I've got a completely different life as soon as I leave the hospital. And that fulfills me to an extent that is putting consistently a stupid grin on my face. Uh, so yes, please. So there, there are two people here, me and Jesse, and we both have lived lives that were beautiful for all intents and purpose from the outside. We have, I guess we have been those people that other people admired. Uh, maybe even were jealous of. We lived lives probably where you think, wow, how much do they earn? Wow. And then if you actually look inside, you don't see the turmoil. You don't see the pain. You don't see the drinking in my case because we were not happy. Was how did you, how did you, when life was tough, when, how did you, uh, a lot of steam is, I guess, the word I'm, I'm looking for. Uh, did alcohol ever play a role in your life? I definitely could. I was an I was an anxious person because I felt this need to please and need to achieve. I never could relax, and so I have definitely. I don't drink anymore. I have not drank for like two, a little over two years. Um, because I would notice that that was a way that I could relax, that I could, like that pressure of needing to please and achieve was relieved by it. And I, I didn't want, it felt like a crutch to me. And I knew that as long as I had that crutch, even just a little bit, even occasionally, that I wasn't going to fully develop real skills and real tools for really dealing with the pressure, really dealing with the anxiety of feeling that need. And so I decided to have no alcohol in my life. And I am so grateful for it. I'm healthier. You know, I feel better. But just knowing that that's not a fallback, that that's not like something like I've had a stressful day. I'm going to go drink a little bit. Like it's not an option anymore. And so now I'm forced to do other things, to bake or to meditate or walk on the land um, healthy ways to cope. Yeah. And that's so hard because we don't cultivate these things. We are going for the easy solution. And if you just need to do and well, that's an easy thing you can do to actually put your shoes on and walk out into the forest uh, or drive to the forest and then walk in the forest. Oh, well, you know, it takes a bit more. So of course we want to go the easy way. That's what people want to do. And it is, it is actually creating new habits. It is learning new skills, going out there, testing these skills. Some of them might work for you. Um, uh, there is 
there are all kind of, of misperceptions out there that, for example, with meditation, you somehow expect uh, a lot of vegans to sit around in the lotus position and incense making you dizzy. Uh, no, guys, no, 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 no. Don't believe what Hollywood sort of, uh, the pictures that you get there. No, no. Okay. Meditation just means that you're actually looking after yourself and you're living in this moment right now and you're enjoying this moment for what it is. And you're not getting sidetracked by 15 other things that want to come into your mind. You just learn how to look at this one second right now and start to feel good about it. That's meditation in a nutshell. It's you're learning how to feel good. Hmm, not a bad thing. Last time I looked. <laughs> so meditation, for example, is one thing. And, and you know, the breathing exercises, uh, to actually learn how to breathe and to, to learn how your diaphragm works and what the chest muscles do and how you breathe when you're in stress. <laughs> Or when you actually take a deep breath and change completely the way your body works by just the simple act of breathing. Most of us have never been taught that unless you go into martial arts or become a bit more life coaching and learning, learning more about how your body really works. How much is that part of your practice now? I mean, you are a life coach now. You're teaching people the, the different ways. What are your strengths? What, what do you place particular emphasis on in your teachings? Um, what, one thing that I work a lot with with my clients is helping them understand their beliefs because they so often have beliefs that they don't that they're that they're blind to just like I do just like you do we all do we have beliefs about ourselves beliefs about the world and they're blind to us and so I when I'm listening to my clients that's a major part of coaching is just listening and listening really well to understand. I'll hear them make a statement as if it's just fact. And then I say, it sounds like you think this. They're like, well, yeah. Have you ever thought about whether that's really true? And then we then we go, gosh, I, I guess it's really not. I guess I don't have to do this to have this, you know, whatever that person's particular situation is. So beliefs, and I call them barrier beliefs, is a really big part of my work with my clients. And once that it's like a, it's an obstacle in the road, like a boulder to getting to where they want to be. And once we identify it, then we can move it out of the way and then they can go on their path. Beautiful. And there are heaps and heaps of barrier beliefs out there, isn't it? And they come, they come from so many directions and they often enough were placed at a very early stage in our development. So it is, it actually takes quite a little bit of work to explore that. So guys, that's not something where you meet Jesse or another life coach or a psychologist once and tick, 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 tick. Brilliant. Found all the beliefs. I work on them. Have a good day. Nah, nah. Um, and certainly whenever I did any work like that as a recipient, then I had to say that there was typically one breakthrough per session, one realization, one aha moment per session. Now, I'm a complex guy. <laughs> there are lots of ahas to be had. Um, so it is, it is a journey. It is definitely not a once-off, hey, I go to, for the weekend to a spa and I feel so much better for the rest of my life. No. <laughs> so, Jesse, how long do people typically work with you? It is, uh, what is the journey that, uh, that they take with you? It depends on what they need. So with almost all of my clients, I meet with them 30 minutes on a Zoom call or a phone call a week. And that some of my clients, like one right now, we've been meeting for three years. And that client has gone through so many wonderful changes, moving to a new state, getting a serious partner, going from employeeship into being a consultant in, in the profession. 
And then other people I've met with shorter term for more specific goals. Like I just recently met with a writer who had writer's block and we worked through and we only, and we discovered what her writer's block was and she was freed up to write again. And she sent me her newsletter that she wrote. She's writing on a book, but she also sent me her newsletter. It's like, thank you. So it really depends. I would say most folks, it's about a year, mm. um, but that's just an average. Mm. And so true, but that is that just shows how how complex we are as human beings. And remember, it, it's it truly we are onions, honestly, or any other kind of layered thing. But an onion is probably the best analogy. You you just peel one layer back, and suddenly there is a new layer there that you had not seen before. And now suddenly you have to deal with those things that are on the second layer. And then guess what? <laughs> you peel that away and then you find something else. And that's what life is. You can't just live 50 years and expect, oh yeah, there's no trauma. There's no nothing there. Nah, it's just a happy box of birds. Eh, no. So, yes, Jesse, absolutely. And for me, again, take my example. Uh, seven years ago, I was in rehab. I did a lot of work there. I got started on my journey. And then I started finding myself, started to develop passion, creativity, etc. Then I thought I was a bit of a steady state. And then a new challenge occurred. Or an old wound festered. I needed more help. And it was at different times, different people came into my life, different life coaches, different uh, people with different expertises. So I had a number of treatments and healings and, and things like that. And each and every one of them was so beautiful. And there are many, many ways out there that people can get help. And not every thing is for everyone. So some of you will like maybe more a religious path and there are religious programs and religious guidances and health coaches out there who tap into your beliefs and help you to get you right there. Um, there are other people who are rather working with women rather than with men. Jesse, are you more a uh, typically looking after women as, a, as your, your forte? Yes, I do have the occasional male client, but typically it's women. And um, my program, Bravest Beautiful Circle, that we haven't talked about, that's just for women. Yeah. Mm. Tell us about this program. Come on, I'm intrigued. <laughs> yes. So this is basically my dream come true as a coach, as a person. I designed the program, Bravest Beautiful Circle is the name. And it is what I wish I had 10 years ago when I was breaking free, when I was opening up, becoming the person I am today. And it's a year-long program. And in it, I teach the 10 habits of a brave woman. And, and we revisit those four times throughout the year to really, because like you said, things aren't learned overnight. And so we go, we look at those 10 habits of a brave woman four times throughout, throughout the year. And there are habits like brave boundaries. A brave woman says no when she wants to. Brave relationships. A brave woman shows up authentically in her relationships. Um, brave path. A brave woman walks her true path. And so each week I go over one of these habits and we, we have group coaching and one-to-one -one coaching with me. And it's just awesome. Even creativity challenges, mindfulness practices. It's everything I love in one program. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, not many times that I say I want to be a girl, but in this particular case, I'm tempted <laughs> because that sounds like a damn good program because it's a program. It is a systematic approach rather than dabbling a bit here and learning a bit to breathe there and getting an insight there. No, it is, it is the bigger picture that is so important. And it's certainly at the start of my journey, I didn't appreciate that as much the, to have a plan and work towards a plan rather than flitting like a butterfly or like a bee from flower to flower and say, ooh, that tastes nice, ooh, that tastes nice. No, it is, uh, you need to be guided by a, a bigger, bigger scheme, so to speak. And there could be far, far worse things than a program such as Jesse's. So 
Well done. So if people want to get hold of you, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how, how does that work? How can they best do that? Yes, people can go on my coaching website, my name, jessiebenson.com. And if they want to schedule a 30-minute free session with me, there's a really easy link. Just go on there, click it, and we'll have a Zoom, a Zoom conversation. And if they want to learn more about my circle, that's on there. Or they can go to www.braveisbeautifulcircle.com. And they can find out about all the ins and outs of the program, which is really, really cool. Cool. And guys, don't write it down. Just look into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. Uh, all the, her links are there. Now, Jesse, what a wonderful, wonderful adventure you're planning there for yourself, as well as for the women who join you on your path. I feel really, really pleased for you there. But if it is a one-year program, I need to ask, or people will ask us, um, can you start at any one time or will it be, how does it work? It'll be four enrollments a year. So I'll, I'll invite 10 women four times a year because I want to keep it small. Mm. And so the first 10 women will come, the first 10 enrollments open now and the first 10 women will start in November. And so those 10 women will get to know each other, work on the 10 habits. And then in the second season, 10 more women will integrate in and that'll be 10 more women to help support each other. And so it'll happen every three months, 10 women will join and then people will graduate at the end of the year. Which is beautiful because that's then the power of the group that sustains you, that you're not just, it's not just Jesse's information, but it is actually Hey, Jesse has suggested, and I tried that, and look what happened. And hey, hey, that worked for me, kind of a thing. So it is so beautiful. That is, uh, wow, connectivity. That's the key to, to us getting better. Oh, wow, beautiful. Jesse, it was such, an, such a beautiful thing to talk to you. And you are out there making this world a, a better place with your actions. And I think this world can do with that quite a lot right now. So, guys, uh, if, if Jesse's words have rang a bell, uh, just look into the description of this, this YouTube video and uh, get in touch with her. Um, unfortunately, if you have got one Y chromosome too many, uh, you need to go a little bit back into, my, uh, into the, the videos uh, because I have uh, had male coaches on uh, who are doing similar work. Uh, think Mike, uh, who is doing uh, Get Rid of the Dead Bot. Um, so here you go. So boys, don't feel that you're missing out. It's just not this video. But the messages that Jesse and I hoped to bring across they should ring a bell with all of us because be brave learn to say no until your lips bleed and live authentically your new life and whatever that life is it that is for you to decide but don't let too many other people make influence that uh, take some time out of your busy schedule and ask yourself if you're really truly happy or if it is time to do something about that. So Jesse, again, it was an honor to have you on my show. Look after yourself, Jesse, and you guys out there, look after yourself and have a fantastic life. Bye. Bye.